Hello and welcome to The Found Cause. We have found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Mike, all the way behind the machine, and my co-host Sebastian is on. We also have Chris. We occasionally do these discussions if somebody reaches out to us, so make sure you comment below if you'd like a similar conversation. We only take the best, though. And Chris emailed the Found Cause uh, email. It's in our channel description to talk about atheism, but specifically he had a couple of gripes with Christianity. He commented a couple on our videos and reached out to see if we'd have a discussion with him. So... Um, I'm gracious and let him come on, and he's gracious enough to actually come on. So it always takes guts and a certain kind of openness to come on opposing viewpoint podcasts like this. So I appreciate that one, Chris. And two, we decided we'd have a on-air discussion for our viewers and for ourselves to see if uh, there's something we can come to or stuff we can learn about each other's positions. So the topic for today to keep things particularly focused, because there's a million things you could talk about between atheism or agnosticism and Christianity was how modern Christians apply the law. So Chris is of the contention, and you can say it yourself when I open up the mic to you, uh, that the modern Christian church, modern Protestant Reformed church specifically, um, does not apply the law, Christian law, biblical law, the way that it should be according to the Bible. And so I'll hand you the mic, Chris, and you give us an intro of yourself and your position. Sure. So one thing I'd like to kind of clarify, I don't consider myself an atheist. Okay. Um, so what would you consider that yourself? For what it is, it probably isn't really that relevant to the conversation, but... What would you consider do, yourself? Um, I'm very open to supernatural causes. I'm very open to, uh, you know, I'm not a materialist, um, so... Okay, so kind of a unique position then. Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm it, I don't reject Christianity because it's supernatural in explanation or in cause, or it has to do with. Well, I mean, I'll get into some of that. Will probably come into why I rejected it again. My position, I think, tonight is not primarily whether it's true or not; it's how it's applied. Okay, good context. Thank um, you. So. What I would say is that, um, so one of your videos was on Christian uh, nonviolence. Mm-hmm. Pacifism, right? I think right? the Sermon on the Mount and, uh, you know, Luke's gospel that intertwines the Sermon on the Mount material. Um, I think the New Testament writers uh, portray a Jesus that is strictly commanding christians to not use violence so that that's one of my big contentions um i think when the word pacifist is used it confuses i don't think it's pacifism um i think you guys brought up in that video that the god of the old testament uh the god in the new testament jesus are every bit capable and willing to use violence if needed but it's a command to the christian not to use violence so i think in the new testament it's pretty clear in the scriptures that christians are not are commanded not to use violence uh even in self-defense but particularly in war situations um I also would, and we can get into later, there's passages about uh, things like lending, expecting nothing in return, giving, um, 
a lot of those passages, I think, are uh, very under, not even underappreciated isn't the right word. They are often not interpreted it to the um, real strength, I think, that the writers intended them to have, in addition to um, a lot of the sayings that have to do with money and wealth and things like that. I think a lot of modern Christians misapply those scriptures or don't actually take them in the uh, text or the context that they're provided. So that that's my general argument. Okay. Um, Do you want to get specific I, on what I money text? Would, would, oh, okay. Go ahead. Now, and I would also add that the church in the first three centuries was across the board in support of Christians not using violence for self-defense purposes and in the context of military service. Um, I would say if you read any of the early considered church fathers, uh, they're pretty unanimous in that and that pretty much, although it's not directly scripture, it is showing how scripture was interpreted. And um, I would argue not until the time of Constantine and um, the Nicene Council in that time period uh, did the ideas of just war theory, which is primarily Augustine, came into play, and that's where state and empire became uh, entwined with the religion, Roman Catholicism that we now know. And so this is not a new theory. Obviously, it's been presented by, but I think it's a strong case. Um, I think also uh, groups such as the Anabaptists, I think, they have a very strong position on this, and I think uh, for the most part they have that right. Now, Anabaptists have a wide variety of different, you know, uh, theological beliefs, and so, I mean, obviously they were initially um, centered around baptism as the main cause, but also I think just as importantly intertwined with the role of government, um, you know, involved in the church. And so I think all those issues play into uh, what the initial aim of the New Testament texts were. Okay. And do you mind, while you have the time to open, do you mind talking specifically about the money texts that you think are applied? So lending, you think, is one that we don't uh, take. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the the text about lending, expecting nothing in return, giving, uh, give to those who ask. Um, also verses about uh, not storing up treasures on earth, but in heaven. Um, also the rich young ruler who's told to give up all his possessions after he goes through the uh, commandments. Um, there's also just a very simple verse about one can't have served two masters, right? Mm -hmm. Mammon, money, and we're God, right? One has to choose between the two. We also have the verses about um, 
the easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to inherit the kingdom. We also have verses in, uh, what is it, uh, James, the epistle of James, about, um, you know, that the wealthy are actually due to be judged, right? They're due to be on the day of slaughter. They're being fattened up. To, and I think another thing I would add is that the New Testament needs to be interpreted under the context of the apocalyptic idea and the fact that um, I think a lot of these verses, I think a lot of the uh, nonviolent um, things have to do with first the fact that Christians now live in a new kingdom where they're supposed to be following the ethics of the kingdom. And then also that uh, it was expected that Jesus was going to return pretty soon. I think this was the expectation of Paul, and I think this was also the expectation of the New Testament writers. And just for extra clarity, what would Christians, so you pointed out the, the, the text that you think that modern Christians are not following. How would them following those texts look like to you? Like what, what about modern Christians are not following those texts? So mo many modern, you know, Christians will talk about the fact that, uh, you know, self-defense it's actually evil to not um, apply self-defense to one's family or to oneself. Um, I, it, it's kind of like a practical idea that it doesn't really make sense, that that can't be what Jesus was asking for. And I think it gets mixed in again with the fact that Christians later on did start to make at first, very small modifications to it. And then as time went on, obviously with things like the Crusades and, uh, you know, war became something that was thought of almost as maybe not holy, but within God's realm, even in the sense of New Testament ethics. Um so it, it was kind of a gradual development, but I think modern Christians are kind of just used to the culture they live in, which is, you know, it would be, wouldn't make sense to not defend oneself or defend one's family, or we have a right in the Second Amendment to bear arms, so therefore we'll do it, right? It's, it's a right given to us by our government, or it's something that... You know, it, it doesn't make sense to them. And I can't speak for every Christian, but my idea is that it may be, you know, and just an interpretation that that's how it's interpreted. But my guess is there's a lot more behind it. It doesn't seem to be a practical way to live. And how about the money passages? I would say that's a similar idea that, you know, People in our day and age are expected to support their family, go out, earn, make a good living, advance in their positions, uh, save money for the future. All these things, I think, are not questions and weren't really the considerations of the New Testament writers. Okay.
Fair enough. Are you done? I mean, it's been 10 minutes, so I figured we would switch over to our side. Yeah, let us pitch. you guys can. Okay, and then we'll, then we'll like really do a discussion. As I said, feel yeah. free to cut me off if you want to yeah. interject. I don't, it's not a matter of me wanting to make a speech. It's kind of a give and take, so. Uh-huh. And likewise, this, for the record audience, this is not a formal debate, it's just a discussion, but I wanted to make sure that Chris gets his time to speak his whole points and, uh, and we'll get a little bit of ours. So I'll start, and Sebastian, maybe you can add in there. Our position, so po- the positive about our position is that we agree in that there are many Christians and so-called Christians that take the law poorly, but we would say that there is a philosophy, a living philosophy that's lived pretty much since the whole of the church, maybe lost at certain points in certain regions, but a proper application of Christian law. Um, there are several different competing philosophies out there, but we, particularly Reformed Protestants, would be of the mindset that the law given by God in the Old Testament, so Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, specifically Leviticus and Deuteronomy, is a valid law, and it still applies today, except that it is fulfilled in Christ. So Christ gives a very famous statement on the Sermon on the Mount, like you mentioned, Chris, where he says, he has not come, and he says this is a preamble to all the the love your enemy, pray for your neighbor, all, all the supposedly contradictory things to the law. He says in the very beginning of that preamble that he has not come to abolish the law or abrogate the law or whatever your translation says. He hasn't come to get rid of the old law. He's come to fulfill it. Um, And the application of the law in the later New Testament writings by Paul and others who freely quotes things like, um, thou shalt not muzzle the ox as it treadeth about the corn, which is a Levitical agricultural law. He applies that to preachers, meaning pay pay your worker, pay me, your worker, or whoever is going to work for you. Don't um, don't muzzle the ox. He applies that with no qualifications. He doesn't say this law is one that Jesus didn't fulfill, and there like he, he he just says it, which we would call the abiding validity of the law, meaning the law given by God prior is still the law today, and that Jesus did not come to abrogate it, and he did not abrogate it. The things that he fulfilled are clear in Scripture. They are expressly talked about in Scripture as being fulfilled. Hebrews is a great book, an epistle to the Hebrews, that walks through the law that we believe is fulfilled by Jesus Christ and has very specific and obvious symbolism for why it is fulfilled. It's not ambiguous. It's not overarching that Jesus just does away with the law and now has a new law of Christ. No, it has specific applications to Old Testament animal sacrifice and Old Testament priesthoods, like things that Jesus died and, and, and did fulfill the law of animal sacrifice. He was the lamb. He fulfills the law of the priesthood because he is the new high priest ministering for us at all times. Um, fulfills the law of the cleanliness codes, so the codes of uh, intertwined fabrics or particular um, not allowed to, to mix uh, crops in the field as well as uh, not touching lepers or some of the other cleanliness code stuff is fulfilled in Christ because now he is our rest, our Sabbath, our cleaner. So the cleanliness code is is fulfilled in Christ. The sacrificial law is fulfilled in Christ. All of that has been generally categorized by theologians over the, the centuries as the ceremonial law because it was, it was always supposed to be a shadow of the coming Christ, whereas the abiding valid law is the moral law. So generally, you know, don't hate your neighbor, love your enemy. That's that's moral. There's no civil punishment for it. And then there's also civil law, which we would hold, me and Sebastian and others would hold that the civil law of God, the prescribed to Israel, is still a valid and good law. So we would promote 
For example, the death penalty for murderers. That's a prescribed law of God. We believe that's a righteous law. We also believe that the civic authority is the one given the authority to apply that law. So me and Sebastian don't go around killing people we think are murderers that haven't died yet. We're not vigilantes like that. We believe that's exactly what Romans 13 and other references in the New Testament are talking about when it says the state, the government, doesn't bear the sword in vain. The government is the one that's appointed to do civic penalties. So it's not for Christians to to take the place of the government, but it is for Christians to advocate for godly law. So we are in the business of defending the law of God, which is controversial because there are not just things like death penalty to murderers, which these days is even controversial, but there are also things like outlawing homosexuality with the death penalty or other things that would be extremely controversial in today's culture that we would um, defend. So uh, I know that sounds extremely extreme, um, but know that I'd carry it like I do anything else. And that is that we slowly push for it. We talk about how it's rooted in the Bible. And if we can be convinced otherwise, you know, I, I am a reasonable man. At least I hope so. So we would hold to the abiding validity of the law. We would also, I personally would abide to, as far as money goes, um, that the Old Testament law, so God's law, prescribes that you do not charge your fellow countrymen, your fellow Israelite in the Old Testament's case, interest. And so a, a pretty long-standing law in Middle Ages Europe as well was that you didn't charge fellow Christians interest. So I would be of the mindset that it would be righteous that we don't charge our fellow countrymen interest. I would expand it to, to anybody in your country and not outside of your country. So I'd keep it on a national level as, as it was in the Old Testament law as opposed to all Christians. But what? Um, I think it applies. So I'm, I'm willing to defend that. I'm also willing to defend Christians building wealth because I would look to the prescriptions of Jesus as um, not leaving all your possessions. And that's further implemented by Paul, who says equally, a man who does not provide for his own family is worse than an unbeliever. And other descriptions of Christians selling things as people had needs, as Christians had needs, uh, wouldn't indicate that they were actually selling all of their possessions and having nothing. Even Jesus had clothes in his feet and he prescribes that the apostles carry provisions um, in his second great permission. He says, carry swords, carry provisions. And then lastly, just to cover some of the points you talked about, but to affirm my point as well, Christians have, even, even historically, I would argue even within the 300 years prior to Nicaea, were promoting self-defense. Um, the, the carrying of weapons is prescribed by Christ for self-defense. And I, I believe the church fathers that are quoted by some nonviolent prescribers are few and far between. The early church was still in its infancy. And so there are no doubt, like Tertullian, Origen, I think, um, are, are some who prescribed nonviolence and non-participation in the government. But a lot of the non-participation in the government was the link to the government being pagan and requiring oaths of loyalty to the emperor and denying Christ to participate in government, which is not the case anymore. And nonviolence was an assumed non-factor except for those who espoused it. And I, you even see that in the Eastern Church that was not part of the Nicene Creed and wasn't part of the Roman Empire, that they continued to promote self-defense. Um, just war is, is Augustinian. And so I think that the extension of the Old Testament law and the way Israel was prescribed to commit war um, is still a righteous law today. And Sebastian, you might have more or less to add to that. Take uh, time. Just to keep it short, because you know, I'm going to be fair and respectful of your time, Chris, as well. We, we're also assuming that the same God of the New Testament is the one in the Old Testament. Therefore, they're be, going to be consistent. So the same God that prescribed the Israelites the law is Jesus Christ, who is 
giving us the lively example of how we should live. And I do want to say, though, that the we hold that the law is good and a good example for Christians to follow if they're in the position of authority, because I'm paraphrasing from the Old Testament, when Moses is given the law, um, the statement arises that all nations in the world should look at Israel and see, wow, what an amazing God these people have because of their law and the way they run society. So I would say that that is encompassing all the laws, even the execution for murder, the no charging interest. And I would say, interestingly enough, too, the something that people in the modern day do incorrectly, that when you steal, you're not supposed to be thrown into jail, but rather the person is to pay back twice the amount that was stolen in money or up to four times. So all these laws together, I would say, exemplify how God expects a society to be run <coughs> in a good, in a, in a way that is uh, good and leads to an improvement in society. So there's our general pitch. Uh, let's open it up for discussion then, Chris. Uh, what do you think, how would you ideally see Christians following the, the no wealth law? I think I can start with that one. But do you think that Christians have a threshold for how much wealth they should be carrying? Like, how do you read uh, those prescriptions of Jesus about the camel not being able to pass through an eye of a needle kind of wealth? Well, so like in the books of, A in the um, book of Acts, the apostles are shown to basically share all their possessions. The and church in it's Jerusalem talked about in several passages. Yep, and and so pretty much they all just kind of meet and share what they have. Um, that came from selling their houses, right? Selling their land, selling their property. So it was kind of a communal kind of living arrangement. Um, I don't know. Jesus says pretty, I mean, again, you have to look at the passages. They pretty clearly say, unless you want to read into something more, that if someone asks something of you, you give it to them. If a brother asks you, yeah. only a fellow believer. It says if anybody asks of you, because it's in the same context of loving your enemy as well. So... Also, you know, a rich, okay, that's something that is degrees, right? What you consider rich, I may not. What I consider rich, you may not. But it pretty, seems pretty clear that any accumulation of wealth is idolatry in a sense. It's focusing on, the mind can focus on either giving thanks to God, worshiping God, right? Or it can be focusing on how do I improve my own standing in life and how do I provide for what I want and what I need. I'd also cite the passages in Matthew where he talks about not worrying about the clothing that you wear, the food that you get, and it makes the analogy to that God provides for the birds, right? And so... There's a lot of passages that basically say you're not to worry about those things. And the reason I brought up the apocalyptic angle is that I do think that plays a large part. I don't think the Christians and the New Testament writers 
We're concerned with how does society survive for hundreds of years after this, or they were not looking for the long haul. They were looking for that we need to get right with God, right? Because the kingdom is here where it's coming. That's something Christians have debated. Is it here already? Is it coming? Is it, you know, kind of here, but still kind of coming? So that that's something that I think, but Christians are to live as though the kingdom is here, right? It kind of goes with passages about Jesus in the nonviolent resistant angle talking about that, you know, his, I think it's John, where his disciples would fight, right? If they were fighting for this kingdom and on this earthly uh, needs, but they're not. They're fighting for the kingdom of God. So therefore, they don't draw swords. They don't use violence. So I think it's a pretty big contrast. And I think it goes with the same thing with money. And I think it goes the same thing with possessions. It's you don't need those things. God provides. And I think it also goes with faith. <clears throat> I think in the Gospels, the. Um, well, we can get into, I guess we'll get into like Luke 22. And we certainly can. Not the past. Uh, I, I mean, will say. That's probably going to come up. Yeah. I'll say, so, so to repeat your point, maybe. So you think that if Christians were to, so currently they aren't, but if they were to follow God's law correctly, in your opinion, they would be living communally with no, they would, they would share possessions. Would they would they even give away their shared possessions? Like, are they allowed to to collect communally, or do they need I think to? They would share it amongst themselves. They would they would provide for those in need. And again, it it's once you start thinking about well, how can we be successful in this life? I think you're getting off of what Jesus wanted people to be thinking about. And do you think his followers to be thinking about it, because it wasn't about being successful in the here and now it was about preparing yourself to be successful for <laughs> the kingdom to come the next life. And do you think that Jesus was speaking a consistent message with the old Testament or do you think he was at odds with it? Um, well, I mean the old Testament had some view of a Messiah I mean, you know, modern Jews have some idea of a Messiah coming, rabbinic Jews. I think it's not as clearly spelled out in the Old Testament. I mean, the verses about Isaiah, about, you know, the lion laying with the lamb and the child laying over the hole. There was a utopian vision that was at one time, you know, that, everything will be redeemed and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. I think that's part of the Old Testament. Sure, but I mean, in specifically think, in regards to the law. So when you say that Jesus is saying nobody may be successful um, on, on earth, do you think that's consistent with the Old Testament law or do you think that is in, in contrast? I think the ancient, the Israelites lived in a different society. It was a theocracy. They, it was a totally different they were trying to establish, you know, their own kingship, their own, their land, their Christians live under Roman rule. And so it, it's a totally different 
I think the Jews, yes, the Jews wanted to prosper in this life. And that was how they viewed God's favor, that if they followed the law, then they would do well in this life, right? And do you think that's or consistent that was the with... hope, at least. But not all Jews even agreed with that. So. Yeah, do you think that is a, a, a consistent reading of the Old Testament, that if you are faithful in this life... I, it it varies. Like, I mean, some of the, some of the, like, the wisdom literature talks about the fact that, you know... It's kind of like Jesus when he says the sun or the rain pours on the, uh, you know, just and unjust, right? Mm -hmm. The sun, it's kind of that like, um, you know, live today because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. That was some of the wisdom literature. But then there were also probably where it seemed to be it was if you follow the law and repent then you'll do well right and that's kind of the theme running through if you follow my commandments and keep faithful to me which the ancient israelites had a really difficult time doing it's kind of like just one event after another of collapse and failure right and then there's always a remnant left over and then that remnant is given <laughs> another chance and then it goes awry somehow and but jesus was bringing in the the new kingdom it's a it's a different thing and again the apocalyptic worldview is different which was that's prosperity isn't going to happen on this world or this it's going to be a new world it's going to be a transformed earth it's going to be it's going to be the kingdom of god that's going to come in so it was different than what the ancient israelites were like for example ideas of the afterlife right that didn't come into being in full force until much later in judaism like the pharisees he believed in a resurrection, right? But the Sadducees were pretty um, straightforward in that they believed in, you know, Sheol and Old Testament early Jewish beliefs that all went to the same place. And so I think Jesus is incorporating a lot of these newer ideas into Judaism in addition to... You know, I don't, yeah, he says, he doesn't say he's replacing the law, he's fulfilling the law. But for him, fulfilling is adding these, we're making it even more, <clears throat> more spiritual and more directly to the point, rather than like the Pharisees were concerned with following, um, you know, more outside kind of regulations and, um, you know, how it appeared more so than what the inner change of heart kind of stuff was. Yeah. Now, now if I can stay in, in Matthew then, in because you're quoting from uh, the section of Matthew where Jesus says, you whitewash tombs, you, you wash the outside of the cup, but you don't wash the inside. Um, he, he tells the Pharisees in that tirade, he says, you tithe a tenth of mint, dill, and incense, which is a priestly tithe. Um, good for you. Like, you should do that, but you also should have kept the other law, which was loving your neighbor. Um, so I, I would argue that you are incorrect in your, your position that Jesus was purely apocalyptic and creating a new thing. 
I believe he was consistent with the Old Testament. I think he strived to show that he was consistent with the Old Testament, that he was consistently fulfilling the law. I believe the Sermon on the Mount was a recitation of the law, not a change to the law. And I think a lot of Christians, well-intended Christians, let alone non-Christians, think that Jesus, when he says, love your enemies, that he's giving a new command. But that is not a new command. It's straight out of Leviticus. Um, Same with love your neighbor. I mean, all, all these things are consistent with God's law. They're really a reiteration of it. Like, Ezekiel or Isaiah or any other prophet that came to call the Israelites to repentance. So to Jesus, now Jesus was not just a prophet, but like a prophet, he was reciting the law for them on the Sermon on the Mount. I don't believe that he was bringing... But not to interrupt, I think think that's the whole point, is that Jesus was saying these were laws, right? These were part of the mosaic law or... But people didn't really follow them, right? So when it right. says love your neighbor, people said, Oh yeah, love your neighbor. I'll leave a little bit of corn on the end of my field for him, right? But that wasn't really what was Jesus is saying this is a spiritual, this is a heart thing, not a physical, hey, I can check it off the box. I just gave something to my neighbor yesterday. I just did the I love my neighbor. What do I have to do next, right? It's kind of like it's fulfilling the, it, it is. It's it's taking what the laws were, but really applying them in a spiritual sense. So I think the nonviolent resistance is Jesus saying, this is what the law really looks like when carried out in full. That's what he's saying. Like, this is actually what it looks like but no one has been able to follow it. Not only haven't they been able to follow it, they don't really want to follow it. And that's what I think the thing with the Pharisees and the scribes and you know the Sadducees and all mm-hmm. the people that he's having these conflicts with, it's you guys, it's the like you said, the whitewashed tombs. You guys look like you're pious, right? You want, I think it's James that says they sit in the front rows, right? And all mm-hmm. these kind of things, but they're not actually changed, right? And I think a true, true Christianity, it's a change of heart. It's the nonviolent, it's the not caring about the fact that you're storing up wealth and it's giving everything to God, essentially. I think that view uh, is is partially true, but I would say the way you're carrying it into not having any wealth or nonviolence are both in contrast to the way Christians, even within Acts or within the Gospels or Jesus himself acted. And I think if if... If what he so meant by these you, things can were you cite me some scripture yeah, of, of absolutely Christians that accumulated wealth that that was considered positive? Yeah, uh, think of the um, the Paul himself, right? Paul himself comes from a pharisaical family, and he travels, which costs money. He takes money money gifts from Thessalonica to the Temple of Jerusalem or the synagogue of Jerusalem for the believing Christians there. Like money is a thing that is allowed to be accumulated and given in gifts. It's allowed to, you're allowed to carry personal property. Paul carries personal property, right? Uh, The apostles carry personal property. Jesus carries personal property. He talks about when somebody touches his cloak, he says, who has touched my cloak, not our cloak or the cloak, right? Things belong to him. Um, Not to 
say that there weren't gifts given. And I do acknowledge that in Acts for a time, they sold things they had as, as was needed and gave it to each other again, as was needed, which is in the text. But what they do continue to say is that believers had their own houses, right? Lydia is a believer that is commended by Paul. She has her own house. The church meets in her house occasionally, right? It wasn't, wasn't considered the church's house. It was still Lydia's house. But she... Converts have a house. I mean, these are people that are converting. They're not, these aren't people that were Christians necessarily for 10 years, or these are people that are converting that have houses, right? Well, and that's the whole point in Acts is that those people who are coming to conversion are selling their houses and giving what they have to the group and, and doing those things. They're only giving houses. donations. Only as is needed, like, though. I mean, we can pull up the text, too, but only as is needed. So they, Where they does sold, it say only as needed? It, it, I think that's a reading into it. We can pull it up. I think it's Acts 2 or 3 um, where this is happening. But uh, they gave as to whom as was needed. In fact, as Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira, who come and lie about what they've done, right? They lie to the church. They say, we sold everything. Here's all the proceeds. And they'd really withheld some of the proceeds. Peter tells right. them, you didn't have to sell. Like, this wasn't a command of God. You chose to sell and then lie to us. But you really lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he, he shuts them dead. So out of Peter's own mouth there is the the positive point on my part that they were not expected to sell all their property. They did not need to do this. This is not a command of Christ. It was something they were doing, but it was not a command of the church. Likewise, I'll say Jesus himself uh there's property the only he only tells particular people to sell their property like the rich young ruler he does not tell for example the pharisees to sell their property who presumably have wealth right he does not ask even um zacchaeus who's in the tree the famous you know guy in the tree tax collector he doesn't even ask him to give his wealth up zacchaeus offers it up and he doesn't even offer all his wealth up he offers he says if i have taken any ill-gotten gains from anybody i'll pay back in fourfold that's zacchaeus's promise but jesus one doesn't ask him to do that and secondly that isn't all his wealth Likewise, for nonviolence, Jesus not only tells his disciples to carry swords um, in the in the kingdom, like the, the latter part of the kingdom, right? He's like, this is your new command, you know, carry the swords. But also in the, the text, I think you quoted a bit ago, where um, Peter strikes one of the people who are coming to arrest Jesus's ear. And Jesus says, you know, put that sword away, whoever, um, that my kingdom's not this world, otherwise they'd fight. He tells that to Pilate, right? Jesus there is saying specifically they'd fight for him not to be crucified. But he doesn't say that they won't fight to defend themselves or fight ever or fight for the kingdom because Peter was carrying a sword around unrebuked by Jesus in the garden. You'd think Jesus would have been like, well, you know, leave the sword at home, dude. But he's carrying the sword. It wasn't a problem that he had the sword. It was only a problem. And he says this to Peter in, in the text in John, I think. Um, it, the only problem was that he was attacking those arresting Jesus and says, do you not think that I could defend myself? Like, that's what Jesus says to Peter. He's saying, you don't need to defend me. In fact, you shouldn't defend me. This is what is supposed to happen. How else will the words of the prophets be fulfilled? So this is not a call to nonviolence. It was a call not to resist the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. So I, I read the Luke passage about the two swords entirely opposite. And I'll tell you how I read that passage. Go ahead. So, one thing, notice that it's surrounded by the passages before that talk about that the disciples will be um, sifted like wheat by Satan, right? Mm -hmm. Basically, and then 
Peter uh, says that he will not betray Jesus, and then Jesus confirms that he will, right? So these are faith, lack of faith, which is a theme that the apostles have ongoing throughout the different gospels, that they lack faith, right? They lack understanding and they lack faith. So prior to the two sword passage, you have the sifting by Satan of, of all the disciples. And then I think even before that, you have the two arguing about who's gonna sit on the right hand with Jesus, right? And that happened, he rebukes yeah. them basically that, you know, you don't know what you're asking for. And so, but then the, they lack faith. Peter's called out for the fact that he is gonna betray Jesus and it will happen. And then we get to the two sword passage, which is really a parallel to the earlier passages in Luke about sending them out without anything, right? Right, yes, it's a direct parallel. So, uh -huh. And notice what he says to them. He asks them the question, did you lack anything? And they say, no, right? that we didn't lack anything. When you sent us out without anything, we didn't need anything. We didn't lack anything. Then they have things, right? They now have possessions. And then quickly after that is when he tells them to sell their cloak to get swords, right? Yeah. And also notice in the passage, they immediately end up with swords, right? Well, they already have. They them, go yeah. out and buy those swords. Well, no. Or do they have those swords already. They have the swords already. Okay, so why do they have swords if they should have had faith in the fact that Jesus had made the point to tell them to go out earlier without anything, right? And but then that remember yeah. what he says after do you the remember fact that they have swords is to fill the prophecy in isaiah which is to be numbered amongst the transgressors so what i think is that the apostles are the transgressors in this particular passage so what he's saying is you who have swords are transgressors and i am numbered amongst you not the so thieves. The actual he was... meaning of the passage is that they are transgressing the law of God by having those swords. It, kind of odd if they were transgressing the law that they didn't, they weren't rebuked by Jesus, and then then they got rid he of the swords. Does rebuke them, but he does. He's he's satirically pointing out the fact that why do you have swords? But but you've done this in the sense that it was going to happen because I needed you to fulfill this prophecy, right? Which is being numbered amongst the transgressors. His own disciples are the transgressors in this situation. And then following that is when they go to pray. And of course, the disciples again let Jesus down and fail to pray. In fact, they're sleeping, right? And he comes back and finds them asleep. So that passage is kind of in the middle of two other um, parts where the disciples lack faith and they don't follow what Jesus wants them to do. So to me, the sword passage is an absolute reversal of carry swords for self-defense. It's they shouldn't have had those swords. And the reason they do is because they lack faith, but then 
it's pretty cool, I think, how Luke works in the Isaiah prophecy as that they're fulfilling this prophecy by doing so. But, okay, I, I, I will say it's an interesting read. It must be a nonviolent read. I, I, Jesus was numbered among the transgressors because he was killed between thieves. He was charged and tried and executed by the state. Like that, that is a clear fulfillment, and it's super relevant, right? When Luke quotes it, right, he's being but arrested. It has to do with the swords. He it, says it immediately after that, that that's linked to the swords, not between the two. It's not linked to the swords. It's linked to the fact that he's giving himself up. And that's what Jesus is describing to them, is that he's going to give himself up. He's going to be arrested. You're going to be persecuted. Like, that's that's what he's prepping. And he gave us context there, too. It's not not about the swords. And likewise, when Jesus gives the command to not go out with extra pair of sandals the, or swords, it immediately says, so that the prophecy can be fulfilled. It, it's, it's immediately talking about the two swords as being the reason for the prophecy. And again, I believe it is for, I mean, we can pull up the text if we need to. I, I'm reluctant to only because I know it'll hurt my recording. If I press a certain key on my keyboard and why, it'll destroy the recording. So I don't really want to cut myself. Maybe maybe Sebastian or you can, Chris. Um, yeah, I can look it up. Okay. I, I would likewise argue while we're looking it up that the the original commission to the 50 disciples to go out amongst the towns of Israel and spread the gospel with no extra cloak, no sword, no money bag, right? That that was a, a brief ministry for the one year, I think, that he commissions them to go do that. And by the time they're back with him, that, that ministry is over. So yeah, they're carrying swords. I don't believe it was in uh, rejection of his original commission because that commission was done. He was recommissioning them to have swords to carry extra cloaks because there was persecution coming so here's how it reads he said to them when i sent you out without a purse bag or sandals did you lack anything they said no not a thing so he's making the point to them when i sent you out before did you lack anything no right so i yeah, fulfilled so my he promise quickly, right? he tells them now he tells them, one who has a purse, take it. But why do they have a purse? If they had, if they lacked nothing before, why do they have a purse? But that's not the big part that we're focusing on. We're sandals, uh, not a thing you said to them, but now the one that has a purse must take it and likewise a bag. And the one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And then it quotes the scripture, and he was counted among the lawless, and indeed what is written about me is being fulfilled. It's being fulfilled in that process of the two swords being presented. But so it's I, not going to be fulfilled at the crucifixion. It's being fulfilled in that process. It's being fulfilled because His he was about to be... disciples are actually the transgressors. He was about to be betrayed to the hands of the Pharisees. Like, he is warning the disciples about persecution. I think we both agree about that, right? Isn't this whole... You, you were giving context to it, too, that this whole section is about Jesus warning them that they are about to suffer persecution because he is about to be handed over to be numbered among the transgressors. Like, and he tells them several times, and he's telling them again here, that he's he's going to die. He's going to be given up to die. They're the transgressors. I think you're reading the transgressors as that's the Jews who are going to capture 
Jesus, no, he, the transgressors he, are the disciples. The, the transgressors are the fellow the criminals that are next to him. Like he is arrested, assumed to be a transgressor, right? He's charged with being a transgressor. And that's why he's numbered among the transgressors. So I, I, I think the reading here is, is not, it's not hard to take my interpretation here that, that he is telling them that persecution is coming. That's why he warns them to, to bring sandals, bring a money bag, bring a sword, and that so be ready. I am about to, it's about to be fulfilled. It's, it's happening right now. I'm being betrayed into the hands of those who are going to count me among the transgressors, right? Those that are going to charge me with a crime. And that's consistent with the synoptics as well. That's the reading. He, he warns the disciples that he's going to come under persecution. They don't really take him seriously. And then he is arrested and they are persecuted as well. So you would agree that earlier they were told to not have anything, right? Yeah, 50 disciples are commissioned with that command. Yeah, and they go out specifically among the towns of Israel and they come back. So when he asked them that they lacked nothing, they say no. Which is, a, yeah, which is a test of did what so, I tell you before come to pass? Yeah. And that was right. harder to believe so than this when, when did he give the command to get the things that they have now? They had already come back. They weren't commanded. They have that the, part just not included in the gospel? There are many things not included in the gospels, but yeah, they, they returned him. They're obviously not but on You're assuming, what, what you're saying is you're assuming it would make more sense in the context of, because the overarching theme, which I know a lot of people don't see, is that the disciples are not loyal followers. They, they often question Jesus on things that they shouldn't be because they're not spiritually inclined, right? When when uh, Peter questions Jesus about why does he have to go and be crucified, and he says, get behind me, saying, right? Uh -huh. he, he rebukes him because he doesn't understand. He, he doesn't understand the ways of God, right? So this theme about the disciples not knowing what's going on is found throughout Mark, Matthew, Luke, yeah, but, and all the Gospels, right? So it fits yeah. that theme. It, it, my theory would fit that theme. The fact that they went against what he had told them. They would be they would be going against what he told them in a lot of ways. The though. That they're not to carry weapons, which. When he says those that live by the sword will die by the sword, that's a blanket statement. That wasn't just a specific statement in that particular time. It was I, said, I believe it is a specific. Live, I believe it's a specific statement for for so, Peter here. Like if anybody stops me here, you'll die by the sword. Like I'm I'm not going to save you, right? I think Peter is assuming that he's going to win, right? This is the Christ. He's going to win. He's going to fight these guys, even though he's outnumbered. So Jesus says, "You live by the sword. You're going to die by the sword." Here, how else would the scriptures be fulfilled but say, "I'm a no, But he doesn't say you. He says those, and this is in Matthew. Those mm -hmm. who live by the sword will die by the sword. He's not specifically just directing it to disciple who uses the sword right well, considering the this context it seems like he might be i will no. i will also say then luke to go back to luke the disciples if if they're with him they're not only disobeying him because they have swords but he also told them to go out and and go two by two and here they are all together with him so you would have thought he would have rebuked them at some point 
But there you go. It. That could be another. So, I mean, they make all kinds of mistakes. But Ultimately, their they're all going to flee. Over. I'm arguing betray. their commission is over. Here they are with him. If their commission wasn't over, wouldn't he be like, go back out there? The, Jesus isn't afraid of rebuking and correcting the disciples. We're, you're talking about it's a theme in the Gospels because he often does. Sure. And so he doesn't withhold rebuke of the disciples. Um, he, he rebukes them when he needs to. And so he would have rebuked them for having the sword, which he does not. Um, I, I don't see in the text there, at least. And he doesn't rebuke them from being off commission because I believe the commission was over. Uh, hard to argue that the commission was not over. The, the 50 disciples that were commissioned to go out amongst the towns of Israel. So just to pause away from the Luke verse. Mm -hmm. So on the Sermon on the Mount, how do you take the famous passage of do not resist an evildoer or do not resist evil? What does resist to you mean? Well, in context, he, he tells you exactly what he means by it. He says, he says do not resist an evildoer. Do not resist the one who asks you to walk a mile with him, right? Those are all, um, I think, references specifically. Later on to, in the... Do we do you want to pull it up for context, too? I used to have Matthew yeah. memorized, but it's been a while. <laughs> in fact, he, he does the... This is like right at the end of Matthew 6, right? You, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So he's... Mm -hmm directly stating the, the law law right about that if i injure you in one particular way you can injure me back right I mean, as far as the death penalty right if i kill you or i kill a human i can surrender my own life right so he's saying that was the old law or that's how the law was interpreted but I say to you, here's a transition, do not resist the one who is evil, right? Do not resist the one who is evil. So how can that be interpreted in any way of, um, well, I have keep, the right to fight back if I need to? Can, can you keep reading? But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him to the other. Uh-huh. And keep reading, if you mind. And if anyone would sue you, take your tunic. Let him have a cloak as well. And keep going. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. Mm -hmm. So I think in full context, it even gets that line in there too, right? Which a lot of nonviolent opponents, uh, proponents quote. I believe the in the context here, the slap, the suing, these are all nonviolent assaults against you. And so I think what Jesus is promoting here is not countersuing, not not defending yourself against nonviolent persecution, right? That just strips you of wealth or whatever. So you else. don't think a slap is violent? No, I actually think it's specifically a backhand. Yeah, I don't. I think it's an insult slap. I think from from the Greek, from the context, from the cultural context, all of that included says that that is that is an insult slap. It's not a an attack. I think. In fact, you, you sent us um, some links prior about that were debates on pacifism. And one of the texts they don't quote is the slap. And I'll say famously, Jehovah's Witnesses, cults, bad quote. They also are pacifists, just so happens. They quote that passage basically exclusively to say that Christ calls for nonviolence, non-intervention. Um, they quote the slap quote from the Sermon on the Mount. And it is 
pretty thoroughly debunked in, in Orthodox Christian circles to say that it's talking about a nonviolence, which I would also hold that Jesus isn't talking about violence there. He's really talking about insults. So, so can you give me quotes where that's debunked? And because like I said, every Christian in the first three centuries took that to mean nonviolent resistance. But okay, now now we're kind of contradicting each other because you also say nonviolent resistance. But didn't you just say that Christ said we're we non, resist? non-resistance, non non-resistance, non-resistance. So when Christ flees from the persecutors, or when Paul flees from the persecutors, do you think that is resisting? Right. You, you're yes, that's permitted because that's one of the things that, like Paul gets escapes right in a basket and they're also told if when you're going from town to town if you're not accepted right dust your feet off and go to the next town right right and if you're persecuted flee to the next so yes but that's non-violent that's not retaliation that's going but it is resistance can you tell me where in the text they're resisting the evildoers is supposed to be physical I think I think you trap yourself into a corner here. If you believe that this call to non-resisting evil is universal, and and likewise, if you believe the slap is is any physical resistance, it would uh, wouldn't it also prevent fleeing? If you're put into the situation where you're where you're hit, then you're saying turn the other cheek in the sense of. Do not retaliate. Take the take the punishment. But he's not giving a direct command necessarily that that you have to sit and be killed. But, but isn't and that also, exactly what he is saying? Because wouldn't you be resisting an evil in your interpretation? Wouldn't you be in, resisting an evil doer? Wouldn't you be fleeing the slap? Wouldn't you be physically resisting if you ran, if you avoided your punishment? And that's why I think that your view of this passage is not consistent with the way Jesus actually applied it or the apostles actually applied it and that they physically resisted. They, they, they did resist evil. Jesus drives out the moneylenders in the temple with a cord, right? Like he, he physically resists so evil. Jesus drives out the moneylenders. And that's not really even agreed upon that that's even a violent act. It's Certainly There's physical. actually no evidence that anyone was hit with the whip or that, I mean, there's various interpretations, but it really is a non sequitur because it's not the disciples, it's not any of the followers. Jesus is permitted to use violence if he decides to. There's nothing against Jesus using violence. So that's, I think that's a category or it's, it's not the disciples. The disciples are commanded not to use violence. And once again, but they're, they're really, it's physical resistance, right? Resisting evil. And again, in your interpretation, I would say that the whole quote, the full quote there is Jesus saying to allow people to slander you. He starts the whole Sermon on the Mount, right? With, with they'll slander you, they'll call your names, they'll, they'll heap all kinds of evil to you and count it as a blessing, right? Because now you're like the Old Testament prophets who likewise were slandered this way. I believe this is a, a talk about slander, about insult, about people who are suing you unrighteously, who are uh, pursuing you and, and insulting you, right? Slapping you. Don't resist those evildoers because it's a, it's a boon to you, right? You're being persecuted like the prophets. I do not believe he's saying you give up your um, life.
now you, you're called to give up your life when the Lord asks you to, but the Lord asking you to is not the same as a, a man asking That's you to. That's the scripture. He is asking you to. He's, he's, he's saying, what about the verses about one who saves their life will lose their life, right? Taking up your cross. It's all, that's a metaphorical to mimic Jesus. That's a call to follow his, right? It, I, it, I agree. Every saying of Jesus follows on the line of your life is not to be valued over your enemy's life, not to be valued over anything to do with, um, you know, forsaking Jesus or your life is a gift from God, right? Essentially. And it's not really yours to protect. It belongs to God. And I agree. I agree with all that, but the application of that, the proper the application of that, so, it, but the proper application of all so that is not you say to, I can defend myself, then you're valuing your life over Jesus's commands. I'd also argue it's a lack of faith also that god will intervene and do something right if you're saying i'm putting it in my own hands it's kind of like the argument the modern argument of you know every one of these discussions breaks into the if someone breaks into your house and threatens you and right if someone comes into your house and you think they're going to kill you and you kill them first well, I don't see how that can be squared in any way with Jesus's ethics. But Jesus is the giver of the Old Testament law. Do you not believe that? Uh, that's a Christian interpretation. I don't think yeah. Jesus has anything to do with the being Old a Christian Testament. myself exactly. and the Christians who follow the law. Right. I would say that Christ here, even here, for sake of argument, we could say, okay, I'll say I'm, I'm going to put on my Christian hat and say, yes, he's okay. the giver <laughs> so, of the law in the Old Testament. So, assuming we're, we're Christians and we're following Christian law. Christians believe that Jesus is the lawgiver from the Old Testament. He's still the lawgiver in the New. He's not giving new law here. He is interpreting the law. And if you look at Old Testament law, it talks about giving your coat to somebody who needs it, right? Lending to those that are expecting. That's all old. This is not new law. This is old law. Um, equally, for those who sue you, like th these are these are reiterations from Jesus, but they are Old Testament um, commands. And then likewise. That's why I believe this is talking about insults, because the Old Testament law does give the explicitly gives the right to defending yourself. To, if somebody invades your house is a is a specific Old Testament example. I think it's probably part of the reason we quote it today. Um, that's all case law that's totally permitted by Christ. And so when he says don't resist, I don't believe it's talking about home invasion. I don't think it's talking about typical self-defense. I believe this is all about you mean the insults, verses that say that you can defend yourself at night. You mean, yeah. Right. Like that's that's given by Christ. I believe he's consistent with his law. Well, but that's Jesus. Are you saying Jesus can't give commands? It's not a there's nothing in that law that says you can't willingly die in your house. I agree. But that law is not violating the law by giving up your life for somebody else. But you, you are violating the law to and I know you've heard this before of loving your neighbor when you let your family die. And Paul says this explicitly too, right? The man who doesn't provide for his family is worse than the unbeliever. Like you are violating the law when you don't defend your the one that you're charged. Well, with. that says provide. And I think that's in context to if you read that context, it was about widows yeah. and providing for them in the church. I think 
you can provide for someone without killing the person that's so how do you how do you provide for your wife your the widow in your house or whoever right when you allow the murderer to murder them it's also i think a, a it's a lack of imagination and again i'm not a pacifist but having studied this to think that there's two choices either you kill that person or they kill you but that's not like we talked about i'm you not even saying that house. we're talking about any physical resistance aren't person. we because when christ says when christ says uh, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek turn the other to him also which again implies a left-handed slap which is a backhand it's an insult right. but you're saying that's any physical violence christ doesn't say grapple with him but you can't kill him right course you can't kill him he just slapped you right he didn't actually come for your life in the same way if you are um assaulted by a man with a gun or whatever if you grapple with him i'm not saying you need to kill him but you have the right to defend yourself which covers killing so but but the the nonviolent advocate would typically say that you cannot physically intervene because otherwise you are breaking christ's commandment that you have you have not turned the other cheek you have in fact Grab the guy's well, hand. Let me ask you, if you end up killing the person coming into your house, how is that loving your enemy and loving your neighbor? How is that, if if he made the point to say that even an eye for an eye is not even acceptable, how is killing someone who hasn't killed you because it's impossible to kill someone if you've already been killed, right? So that's well disproportionate. So what you're saying is, I think I'm going to be killed. Therefore, I'm going to take the chance and kill. That would go to me. That's just unequivocally against what Jesus is saying. That's valuing your life. That's not trusting God to get you out of the situation. It's really, it's what anyone else would do it's what any of the tax collectors the pagans any of the terms you want to use in the new testament to describe the unbelievers i would just say congratulations you're like everybody else yeah pagans also eat food and so do we i would say you're loving your enemy in that case by giving him just justice as opposed to torture there are things that are not permitted in god's law right? Like you're not allowed to torture people in their death, right? It's just, it's just clean execution. Uh, so likewise, you're loving that enemy of yours by justly bringing him justice and not unjustly pursuing him, not unjustly suing him, right? There are a lot of things you can do to your enemies that are unrighteous. And what Jesus says about the lex talionis um, is not a refutation of the eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. It's you cannot apply the limits of punishment, which is really what the lex talionis is, right? The, their limits that if somebody breaks your tooth, you're not allowed to kill him or maim his hand or whatever else. You have to charge him the price of a tooth. And sometimes it's just in shekels. It's not even his own tooth because why would you want his own tooth? Um, likewise, Jesus is saying you can't apply the righteous God law from Leviticus, right? Lex talionis to cases where somebody has wronged you and therefore you're going to they've insulted you right and therefore you're going to spit in their food you're going to steal their money like that's that's what you can apply these things to and if you look at some rabbinical teachings they were talking about that you can especially under roman law because the jews weren't necessarily governing all courts that you could bring justice into your own hands because you were owed justice but what jesus is saying there is for insults just let your enemy have the insult Right. And, and prior prior to this verse in, in the Sermon on the Mount, remember, he also gives the example of those who are heading to court to sue you. He says, 
go like meet up with that guy who's planning to sue you and settle with them because if you go to court you may end up right. going to jail and it's worse right so i think it's right it's and all early this exact christians context. were against taking people to court also and against suing and so they also took those passages as and now look at modern christians they don't blink an eye at, well, okay. about going to court and that 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 command so here's what the question i would ask about you. being sued based on your ethics and the way you interpret the new testament what would make a christian any different from any of the pagans around them and because christians unrightfully assume that the pagans you know didn't care about uh ethics and when in fact, most all of Roman and Greek philosophy is to do with ethical behavior. And so I think what you've done is reduce Jesus to just any other ethical, well, you do it if you can, but you're not really required to, because I haven't heard any distinct, it's kind of like, well, you can defend yourself when you think it's right right well what is the guidelines for that that that's what anybody would do that that's any anybody who thought about and allowed for self-defense would just say well i'll just do it when i think it's ethical to do it and when i don't i won't and i'll find another way or if that's what i kind of unless i'm mishearing you well you, you i kind of feel like you're just saying it's kind of just all up for grabs and there's not really any exact standard on it you can love your enemy but that can look like killing them if you have to you can also you know lend but not all of you don't have to take jesus's words literally you can you know keep some of your wealth well what about the parable about storing up treasures in heaven and not on earth that's pretty pretty direct in the sense that you know anything you're saving up is pretty much going to just go with you when you die right and will be yeah. worthless and Again, I would say that's lack of trust in God to provide for you. Uh, if it, you're relying on your money, then congratulations, you're doing what every other pagan and non-believer would do. That's Yeah, and I would say maybe we forget because of how prolific Christian law has transformed the world, how unrighteous pagans are. Um, they, they believe in ethics. I 100% agree with you. And some of their ethics are good and some of them are awful. And if you look at so how are they any different? That's what my question at, is. Yes. Is and so look at the justification that even the Jews at the time, let alone Romans, let alone Persians or whoever else were in the region, were using for death penalty or law. They were not righteous. Some are righteous, right? Murder, death penalty. We all agree on that one, or at least they did at the time. But sometimes, and even in Muslim countries today, look at other religions that have law. Muslim countries today say that if somebody steals from you, you chop off their hand, their means of work, right? That is unrighteous law. And so that's what a pagan would do. That's not loving your enemy, that's hating your enemy because you're, you're not actually giving him justice, you're giving him injustice. So that, I think that's how Christians differ is they, they justly punish their enemies, right? And, Isn't and, that an opinion? That's not a... So what if your opinion, you as Christian A's opinion is different than Christian B's? And 
we would point back to the yeah. Bible. I would point back to biblical law and okay, say, what, this, so what scripture are you pointing to? I guess I, that would be my question. Uh, Levitical law, I believe it's in Deuteronomy as well, because Deuteronomy repeats most of Leviticus in that the punishment for theft is not the removal of a hand. It's the payment back twice, three times and four times, depending on the judge's judgment of how much the, the thief stole is to repay. And if he cannot repay, it's indentured servitude until he can. That's that's the proper like, punishment for a thief. Like modern rabbis even take the eye for an eye as it was never literal. Uh, they they a lot of them interpret that as that that was only for financial and yeah. you know restitution and and that's a reinterpretation of an old ancient Israelite law. Well, right? it's it's really not so, because even in the Lex Talionis, which is Leviticus twenty something. Anyways, I can't quote it to you right now, but you can Google it. Uh, it talks about the payment for you pay the price of a tooth. So that that was always an application for it. I believe the price of a tooth could be the other person's tooth, but that's like who who would take that, right? Uh, maybe somebody. Um, but typically you'd want financial compensation because you can't do anything with the other person's tooth. Uh, so Gandhi was biblically illiterate and uh, his his refutation of the Lex Talionis is also wrong and that the whole world does not go blind if you apply eye for an eye. Everybody just gets paid for the eye they lost. That's all. And, and modern rabbis interpret a lot of things that I wouldn't agree with, but I would agree with that one because, again, it's directly from the Old Testament law. So I, my question would be, how would you establish then Christian law or New Testament law in a modern society without just reverting to secular law? How, if, if you can't clearly define what is and what isn't, and, and like, for example, you, you're in favor of the death penalty, mm -hmm. I would argue that the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures, absolutely forbid a Christian being involved in the death penalty, even being a part of it, as in... Now, the government can issue a death penalty. The Roman government can step in. That's what the government's for, right? But that's a non-Christian entity or a non-Christian arm. I think you can have that Christian governments. I would argue that the Christian can absolutely be involved in casting down the death penalty if they're in a position in government, right? As long as they're part of the civic arm, they are entitled to, to being a judge and casting that kind of judgment. I don't see where, unless, except if you extend love your enemy as meaning never punish your enemy, um, that which I would not call love, right? The, the Bible says everywhere and in Proverbs and that, that God disciplines well, it does. those who it, 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 So the New Testament allows for government agencies, right, to be the punisher and also the overall punisher is God, right? Yep. And what vengeance is mine, right? Says and and what so, what prevents a Christian so, from being in government? Nothing. I because would, it would violate Jesus's ethical commands. It, it, it doesn't, though. If you're, I argue your application. If you're in your a position. Is, we're talking about right. specifically if you were in a position where you would need to pronounce the death penalty or mm -hmm. carry it out in some way. It's right? it's totally in line with that's, God's that's law. That's the whole. And it's in line with loving your enemy to give him justice. Now, if you were unrighteously killing your enemy, right? If you faked evidence or you didn't get look for two to three witnesses, like there's a lot of standards God's law has. So if you unrighteously put your enemy to death, well, yeah, the blood is on your head. But 
if you righteously put him to death, that's that's righteous. That's in line with loving your enemy. It's totally there. And so I would argue, yes, is that a lot of Christians don't take God's law seriously. But I would say this philosophy that I'm espousing to you right now has been, it's an age-old philosophy. It's one that the I believe the early apostles had. I believe Paul had it. I believe the reformers of the Protestant Reformation had it. And I believe this country was actually founded on men who had the similar principles. Um, so yeah, this country has gone a long way from being a Christian nation, um, but I would still hold to the Christian tradition that is uh, following God's law. So I believe that all Christians can be corrected by God's law of the Old Testament, and it's and it's in light of Christ now, um, and that we we do consistently interpret the law, and we're ready to be corrected where we don't. I don't believe nonviolence is a is a command of Jesus's. I think it's pretty clear by the way he acted. I think interpreting him to be nonviolent also discredits some of his own actions and the actions of his apostles immediately afterwards. And the same with wealth. I, I would say that if the heart disposition of somebody is trusting in their wealth over God, that is what God is calling out. I believe his parable is about storing up wealth in a, in a barn instead of using it and investing it is also a rejection of the gifts that God has given you. And he gives a parable of the talents that's very similar. But the acquisition of talents, the acquisitions of wealth are not reprimanded by God. They are there. So what rewards. does that mean? A rejection of the gifts that God has given you? Uh, the parable of the talents. How does were, that applied, or how would that be applied by someone if there, there's a parable about wealth where Jesus says a man comes into he's already rich he comes into more wealth and instead of either giving it to friends or investing it or using it he builds a bigger barn to store his wealth and then the barn is destroyed and that man dies and you know he, all for naught right that he he didn't right. use it in life. And so similarly, I'd, I'd look to the parable of the talents where Jesus talks about a master who gives his money to three servants and they are to faithfully use the money he gives them to make more money. Um, and one of them buries the talent and doesn't do anything with it. That's the wicked servant. The other one to use money and they acquire more money and the reward is more money, right? Like their reward is that they're given even more money and the money that was given to the unfaithful servant is given to the most wealthy servant. So wealth is a gift from God. It's not always, it's not, it's not a... Prosperity gospel, if you're good, you will get wealthy 100% of the time. God is a slot machine kind of guy. Um, but wealth is a perfectly righteous thing for a Christian to have if they're using it righteously. So I, we could get into that parable. I don't, I don't think it's directly applicable to it's a parable. But so on the Sermon on the Mount, how would you, what, what does it mean that why are the poor blessed? Because. It's okay to accumulate money, and why is it blessed then to be poor? Why is it blessed to be insulted? That that's that would be my question. All all these things are afflictions. Being poor is an affliction. So blessed are you if your lot in this life was was poverty. Um, you'll be blessed with riches. That's not a command to poverty. It, just as blessed are those who are scorned, insulted. That's not a command to. Go get yourself insulted. Now you probably will be. Why is it better to be poor? If we're following your line of thought, why would he say blessed is the poor? It's why not, it's is not the better to blessed? be poor? Why it's, are those 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 who are why poor? Are they are, why would that be a blessed situation to not have money? If if what if your if your line of reasoning is correct, then accumulating money is no problem for Christians, right? As long as they're or, using or it righteously. Not... Yeah. Okay, so then why would the poor be blessed? 
because their lot is bad and God's going to give them recompense for the bad lot they had? Why wouldn't he just say blessed are the poor and rich? Or (laughs) If everybody can be equally blessed, why is he distinguishing the poor? Why does he make the point to say that the rich man passing through the eye of the needle and all that kind of stuff. Why, why would those be, why is that theme continually brought up in the Gospels and when it really, according to your theory, doesn't really matter whether you're poor, middle class, rich, why does he make the point to say that those who, you can only have one master, right? Yeah, might I suggest Money to you, or, yeah, that uh, the the time, and we still do it today, those who are poor are often ridiculed. I mean, kind of. Sometimes today, I mean, it ebbs and flows, right? And James even says that you shouldn't uh, favor the poor over the rich either, in case we're tempted to. But the poor were typically unfavored. And so Jesus is ministering to those who are unfavored by saying you will be favored. It's not a command to be poor. And so likewise, with the man, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, says, I've done everything, I've fulfilled all the law, right? Let me be your follower. And Jesus says, well, you for you, right? You have a problem with money. You sell all your stuff, then you can come follow me, and the man isn't willing to do it. And then he turns around and says to the, the disciples, wealth is a real obstacle for people. And then the disciples say, well, who can enter heaven, right? If, if it's as hard to enter heaven with any wealth as a camel fitting through the eye of a needle. And Christ says, what is impossible for man is possible with God, meaning you, you absolutely can enter the kingdom of God being wealthy, but it is a hardship. So I think when you say, being poor, it would be the, some people are built or born into wealth, right? Mm -hmm. Right? Yep. I, I don't think he's talking about the fact if you're born into wealth and you have, you know, this wealth attached to you that that ultimately is a sin in and of itself but if you are choosing to continue to accumulate wealth that's a sin right again what is your focus you should be focusing on then providing for those that need right so if you have excess you should be looking to provide for those you need that's where the verse is about giving expecting nothing in return, lending, right? So if you're looking to accumulate money, then that's a sin, according to Jesus. It depends on what you mean. anyone who's wealthy, most people who are wealthy, right, get there because their goal is to accumulate wealth. I mean, I don't know the stats on that, but I believe you. I I would say that the righteous, there's a righteous way to accumulate money and an unrighteous way to accumulate money. So I think we'd want to be specific on why and how somebody's accumulating money. I think often people accumulate money by unjust ways. So those are obviously wrong, right? They're by inherently they're unjust. So of course that's unjust. And then likewise, you can give nothing, right? Make a bunch of money and give none of it, invest none of it. I would probably by unrighteous means because it's very hard to make money without helping somebody um, unless you're doing it unjustly, right? Robbing it, stealing it, taxing somebody. Um, But typically, and the way God has designed the world and and the Proverbs, God's law, God's wisdom is that if you work hard, you're benefiting others, right? If I'm Jeff Bezos, I've benefited billions of people on the planet. So of course I have a ton of money, right? I, I do not believe that his 
mean, there are definitely unrighteous things you could point out about Jeff Bezos. So maybe I shouldn't defend. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't super defend Jeff Bezos. But yeah, if if he all he did was be the CEO of Amazon, right, and do a really good job, his accumulation of wealth is totally righteous. But are there any scriptures to support that? See, I think that seems like another. I think that Job was wealthy, gifted argument. by God with wealth. Okay, Isaiah was wealthy, gifted by God with wealth. I mean, the, the well, Lydia was wealthy. I don't think the accumulation of wealth is really an issue in the Old Testament per se. Of course it's it a, was. The king was not supposed to acquire tons of horses and riches Solomon for himself. Solomon was one of the wealthiest kings ever, right? Yeah, and it was a bad thing for him. I mean, it's explicitly in the law that the king is not supposed to acquire wealth, specifically the king, and Solomon specifically did. So, like... There are certain people who are supposed to avoid wealth. I think the the theme of the New Testament is that wealth does you no good in the sense that you're not going to be able to take it with you. And it also is a distraction. And in worst cases, it's idolatry. You actually worship accumulating the wealth or the actual money itself over... Yeah, I, I that don't. You should be focusing on, right? I don't deny that. Kind of about. It, it's similar to the verse in, when Paul talks about that the time is growing short, right? And for now on, uh, he recommends that they act as though they have no wives, no possessions, because the form of this world is passing away. Are you familiar with that verse? Yeah. So what do Similar you think? to that, it's, it's that mindset that this is all coming to an end and it makes no sense. And this is my point, because when Christians living in the modern world, first of all, I don't think many of them or most of them are thinking day to day, Jesus might return. I need to get right. Right. They're involved in their everyday lives. They're spending they're buying they're investing they're they're doing things that really would not even have been even in play or really a part of the first century gospel writers you don't think the first century gospel writers bought and sold so the ones that yes they what they had to do but if they actually believed in the fact that jesus was returning soon it totally changed their mindset and what they did but again going back to acts they sold their house they sold their possessions that's not what someone does he's intending to live in a house for the next 40 years and retire and yeah and yet some retain houses for What's that? And yet some retained their houses. They obviously retained their own clothing. Okay, you're, so you're uh, what you are failing to I realize mean, is that they did not do what you're thinking. They didn't actually hold all community property. They didn't actually sell everything they had. And they weren't reprimanded for it. I mean Peter explicitly says they didn't need to. Ananias and Sapphira did not need to do what they did. They didn't need to sell their property. It was all out of goodwill. And what I would argue is that those who did, they had extra property. They sold it for the sake of the poor brothers, and so they gave the money to them. And so it's a it's a divine um, hyperbole to say that they held everything in common, right? They 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 just didn't let anybody be in need. And if, and well, eventually they did have need, right? Like 
Thessalonica has to give money to the Jerusalem poor. Right, and they were converts. They were people that Paul came upon, right, who were also, many of those people had had prior disciples who were coming telling them different things, right? Like they needed to be circumcised. They needed to follow probably dietary laws, all kinds of things. Paul's coming behind and either trying to correct them on it or trying to encourage them, right? He, he goes at length about these people that are coming that are deceitful workers. And so there were people preaching other Christ, other versions of Jesus to these people, right? So these are converts that, that, and he's collecting money from them. He's going and getting money so that he can bring it back to the Jerusalem church, right? Or that's what he's saying. Yep. So these aren't people that have been Christians for years and years that are they're people that are figuring out what it is. Obviously, if he has to tell them what even the creed is, then they're kind of new to it, right? Well, he I has he... to reiterate to them what his gospel is, what he believes, right? I mean, I, I, everybody at the time was a convert, so I don't deny that they were converts. I think that they may have been a longer-standing church than you realize. I also don't know that Judaizers were a problem in Thessalonica, but um, all that beside the point. I think it witnesses that the Jerusalem church did not sell everything it had be, for the sake of the poor because they needed to get more money. And then likewise, Paul's messages and, and epistles to the Corinthian church was that they shouldn't provide for widows. Right. That's he specifically says, do not provide for widows that have family members. Right. And that's when he says those who don't work shouldn't eat. So that philosophy is at odds with your assumption that what the church was supposed to do, according to Jesus's vague promises about not liking wealth, was be a commune. Um, but they clearly weren't. And Paul doesn't even reprimand them for not being a commune. All he says, don't I mean, he says things that communes would normally do. And that is, he says, don't provide for the widows who have family, right? That Those are things that are in conflict. That was not the only passage about providing. Uh, it also assumes that you need money, lots of money to provide. Well, you need some amount of money to provide. Well, I mean, an animal provides to, right? Mammals provide to other mammals without money, right? Uh, so I think as long we, as you we, have resources or I think you're reading into it that it requires someone to have a full time job and a, to provide for their family. And I think in the context, it's saying the church isn't going to provide, isn't going to just take care of these people. If And again, this is one of those later. I know you don't. I, I saw one of your things about the disputed letters and this is. A later letter, no doubt, right? So do you dispute it being Pauline? Well, I guess it's a... Yeah. Okay, well, it's a... Uh, I guess that's a topic for another day. We're all assuming we're, we're Christians here, not the skeptics. But the if, if we're taking Christian law, which would include all the Pauline letters, um, it would include that law. That is that those who don't work shouldn't eat. And generally, I would say we have ridiculous excess in the United States today. I don't know what you would like Christians to truly look like in the United States, because if we 
if you work a minimum wage job at Domino's, you have enough to, to live on the street as a hobo, like you can provide for yourself. Um, is that what you think the Christian church should look like, right? Because then you have all this excess time and what is the Christian doing as they live as a hobo? They're not loving their neighbor. It's a particularly selfish thing to do to be lazy enough to not be able to provide for yourself, let alone others. It, I, here's the thing. When, when I, you ask me what should a Christian do, I think the problem is that, and this is where, again, I think at the beginning, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the fact that Christians have to figure out a way to, you know, the scriptures are the basis, that's the foundation, and they have to figure a way to be able to accommodate them in a different environment 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years later, and I don't really think they fit into our current environment. And, and again, if you follow Jesus's ethics, well, again, I also said that the first century Christians expected Jesus to return. I think that's pretty clear in the scriptures. So, but they're here. It's nearly 2,000 years later and so now you're having to figure out, and this is where I think things like just war theory and, you know, it, it, Christians have had to figure out how to live within vast different societies. And, but I don't think the initial aim was that this is going to be for the long haul. So I mean, that's I, I a, would... a very controversial thing. It's probably another discussion. Probably. Yes, I, I don't think that early Christians thought it was going to be 2,000 years from then. I think Christ knew and did. Um, I would hold that Christ's law, um, which includes God's law of the Old Testament, is a long-standing law. And I think the only way that Christians aren't applying the God's law today um, are ways that would be better for them. So they're not, they're not, God's law is not hard to do and would make you a hobo in the street. God's law isn't unapplicable to the year 2024. God's law would be better for Christians today if we followed it. Um, and it does not involve only working enough to provide for yourself. It doesn't involve some of the things, or nonviolence. It doesn't provide for some of the things that you think it is requiring um, based on the text. That's my general summary so do, here. Do you think the, so do you think the early church fathers got it wrong for the first three centuries? I don't think that they were as... I know, no, they got a lot of stuff wrong, probably. But. Uh, they did get a lot of stuff wrong, but I would say they're also not as unified as you are making them out to be. I, I would challenge you to find me one quote from the first three centuries. What kind of quote are In you fact, looking for? even past that, that has anything to do with self-defense or fact it's uni it's across the board that every quote has to do with nonviolence, and in fact, the, one of the major things addressed, like from Tertullian and Origen and even Justin Martyr right away is, is, well, not military service for Justin Martyr, but Justin Martyr talks a lot about, um, you know, just going back to the Old Testament, turning swords into plowshares and things like that. And, and they all state these themes over and over again that the way you can distinguish a Christian from anybody else is this unrelenting and unchangeable 
uh, ethic about not harming enemies. In fact, not only do they not harm them, they love them, and they go on and on, and it's pretty across the board. I would say so that would be my challenge for you to find me anybody who says otherwise. Well, I do leave uh, room for the early church to be wrong. However, I I will take the challenge at heart as far as I think okay. that some of the loudest voices about the nonviolence issue were nonviolent proponents because that would make sense, right? They're trying to promote something that they don't think is being followed. I think it's probably indicative of the fact that it wasn't being followed. They're just a martyr and Tertullian were talking so much about it. Um, I would look at Athanasius as well. I don't know Athanasius's point on it, so I'd have to look. Um, but the the point most of them were writing to was like some of them were writing to Roman emperors and actually trying to distinguish so the fact that they were persecuted and they were trying to lay out a case about who they were and what their beliefs were. And so, you know, the, the point of a lot of the letters was either to correct or just to give a general guidance, but a lot of them, the later ones, like Tertullian wrote a lot about war, about soldiers, not the Christian not being able to serve in the military. And it wasn't just because of taking oaths, it was because of the non-violent nature of Christ, and that it was against their philosophy and way of life to do so. And it's, it's scholars have studied this, and it's pretty much across the board. Scholars study a lot of things. But again, I'll, I'll take the challenge, kind of out of the scope of this conversation. Okay. okay. Well, it's been an hour and 30, so let's wrap it up. I want to thank you, Chris, for coming on and talking about it. Thank you for being so jovial about it, because I know we got um, that these are serious issues. So, And you're hearing kind of our hardest arguments here. I don't think these are things that American Christians talk about a lot because of how hard they are and how much life change they could require, right? Like if, if your position is correct and somebody wants to stay a consistent Christian, pretty hard. And honestly, even my position of holding to God's law, God's law isn't always easy, right? It requires positions that are not popular, like penalties for homosexuality, like not provide, or charging interest, right? Those are hard and not putting people in jail. Those aren't even party line positions here in the U.S., right? Those are against the Republican Party half the time. They're against the Democratic Party half the time. They're, they're not popular issues. So I think any Christian should be challenged by God's law and, and what it means for their life. So I appreciate you coming on, Chris. Do you have any closing comments, Sebastian? I know you've been uh, <laughs> pretty quiet. I, I've been more of an, of an arbiter to see if things got out of hand. Thankfully, you both were very civil and cordial with each other. I appreciate you, Chris, for being so clear and transparent with your thoughts. It's been very enlightening. We've been also soaking in a lot. I'm going to look into the Church Fathers because, you know, that's, if you've seen other yeah, episodes. Yeah, please do. I, actually, I've got a couple books right near me if you want to look. Sure. This yeah. one. I just happen to have this near me, but can you, oh, if you can see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good book. It's got a bunch of text and quotes and stuff from the early church um i've got several others too but yeah there's a lot you can find online if you just do a search and just get quotes and and sebastian's got a couple compendiums of of uh, specific writers too sebastian's really the one that looks up these things i like wikipedia which is kind of sad but uh sebastian does way more in-depth research than me 
it is engaging and also you yeah. know, as a disclaimer for even for Christians, we would say that people like Irenaeus have got things way wrong. He believed that Jesus was 60 something when he died, which all denominations say that's flat wrong. So, you know, just for the record, they did say some questionable things every once in a while. So they're not scripture. They just, they what, the way we should see them is they're a good way to see what people thought back then or how they read the scripture. So it's useful. But again, it is not, we should go back to scriptures. You both have been trying to do your best to right. be hold into scripture. Yep, agreed. I don't, I mean, I don't read any of them as they are the absolute authority on interpreting, but you have to read across the board. But the reason I brought that up most importantly is because it, it's directly the topic, but mm -hmm. it's a pretty wide consensus, right? So whenever you study something, when you find that a large amount of people agree, that doesn't mean it's right. Yeah. The fact that has no bearing on the fact whether it's right or not, but it does lead you to think, well, something, there's something here. If everybody's interpreting it, then it's either there's really a powerful source dictating something to everybody, right? Yeah. Or I... everybody has come to a conclusion that's similar and across the board Christians came to that conclusion and I would agree when I read the scriptures that's the conclusion I would come to as well so yeah my caution on early church fathers and conclusions like they all agreed on this is that there are a lot of groups that do that kind of language they say all the early church fathers believed that Mary was assumed to heaven which None of them do. And they'll quote Tertullian and right. they'll say like, Mary, it was holy. And they'll say, there, there it is. She was assumed to heaven. And there's a lot of fight around what early church fathers believe. So that's why I'm curious what our investigation will be. No, I, I do truly about. mean all of them that I've read. Okay. So well, uh, again, I would be it. interested. Actually, it would be cool if you guys could find someone who is a consenter. That would be interesting. Someone who's, you know either quoting someone they're against or i mean there were christians in the military like in the second century and but they were uniformly by the you know elders they were told that they either had to leave the military or you know perform in some position that was didn't require them to use capital punishment you know or lethal force and yeah take it for what it is all right well thanks again chris and we have found our cause and serve the lord jesus christ thanks for listening audience it's been a long episode so until next time i'll talk to you about something completely different i'm sure 